Dinah Ramey Berry, professor of history at the University of Texas, discusses her book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. We have evidence of, of babies being taken from the breast, literally, hmm. at the auction. And I, and to be honest, I, I have to confess, um, I couldn't talk about that part of this history for about six years because I had a little, I had a young child and I nursed that child and I could not publicly speak about it. I could not write the first um, three chapters of this book until I was further, until my child was older. I also speak with Sean Kerrigan, author of Bureaucratic Insanity, The American Bureaucrats' Descent into Madness. But they like to live within the rules. The rules give them a sense of purpose. So the rules almost become a kind of substitute for community or, or personal meaning. Time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is brought to you by Simply Zen. Simply Zen is a guided meditation app for iPhone developed for people who want to develop and grow a mindfulness habit without having a subscription fee. You pay only once, just $1.99 during the launch special. Search for Simply Zen on the App Store and experience the benefits of a mindfulness practice today. Reach customers by advertising on Progressive Spirit. Go to AdvertiseCast slash Progressive Spirit. That's AdvertiseCast slash Progressive Spirit. For the Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. If there's an overarching theme to this week's show, it is the artificial placing of value on human life. It is the reduction of human beings to a commodity. Dinah Ramey Berry is an associate professor of history in African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She's the author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved, From Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. Even in the um, newspapers, they'll have columns where they'll talk about how to grow a Negro. Literally, that's the term, like, you know, how to, on raising Negroes and livestock. And they literally um, manage this system of reproduction very similar to animal husbandry. I will speak with Professor Ramey in the second part of the show. My first guest is Sean Kerrigan. Sean is the author of Bureaucratic Insanity, the American Bureaucrats' Descent into Madness. For some reason, they seem to they seem to get a, a certain amount of joy out of punishing children these days. And I can, for a long time, this didn't make any sense to me. That's what motivated me to write the book, is trying to figure out why are people acting so aggressively in this society? You know, we call it zero tolerance, but it's really zero intellect, zero personal responsibility. People feel like they're justified in using these excessive methods to punish children. Sean Kerrigan, he's a writer. Regular topics include economic collapse, bureaucracy, death, and other fun things. And we're going to talk about those fun things today. Last year, 2016, uh, he wrote a book called Bureaucratic Insanity. The American Bureaucrats' Descent into Madness. And I just found that, and I found it fascinating, and I uh, looked him up and wanted to have a conversation with Sean. He's uh, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We're talking via Skype. Welcome, Sean, to Progressive Spirit. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. You write in your book uh, that you were disillusioned in 2008. What, what was it that disillusioned you? Well, for a long time when I was growing up, I believed that you know you could have your cake and eat it too, basically. You could have a job. You could have a sense of belonging in your job. But once the economic crisis hit and it became harder and harder to find meaningful work, I started to realize that uh, the job market doesn't provide you with a sense of meaning. That's something that comes from within yourself. And I know, I know that the, the corporate environment has no interest in nurturing people in that regard. So you really need to... Uh, to work to find a sense of personal belonging and whatever it is you're doing. And if you're just passive about it, you'll find that, uh, you know, life isn't going in the direction that you want it to go. I suppose it's just a matter of maturing, but the, the crisis really brought that to a head. Who and what are bureaucrats? Give me a definition. Well, the term bureau comes from desk. It's from France. And, uh, when they 
first described the concept of the bureaucrat, it was someone who sat at a desk and made rules or enforced rules. So it was it was a very derided term right from the beginning. Everybody kind of had the sense that a bureaucrat doesn't really do anything. They're just kind of middle management. They get in the way. And so there was always kind of a hostility towards the bureaucrat right at the, the beginning. And it was always seen as kind of soulless work. Now we have bureaucrats at every level. I mean, most jobs involve some kind of bureaucratic behavior where you're not really allowed to proceed in the way that you think is best. You have to adhere to certain principles, and those principles are either dictated by the market or they're dictated by your immediate superior or they're dictated by the government. It's like every job you can think of has little rules that you need to follow, and granted those rules are there for good reason. They, it does improve efficiency to move more and more decisions higher up the food chain, but the result is a loss of personal meaning in everybody's lives. So that's the history of the bureaucrat is just the moving of more and more decision making into fewer and fewer hands. And uh, in your research, you've discovered that that uh, tend tendency towards bureaucracy has increased within uh, what the last mentioned the French Revolution, but within the last what, 30 years? I would say that it's definitely uh, getting more and more intense, particularly in positions where that previously wasn't the case. Uh, I, I talk a lot about schools, particularly in the beginning of the book, because I feel like when I was growing up, which was not that long ago, um, I'm only in my 30s, but teachers had a lot more uh, authority to sort of proceed how they wanted. They could cover topics that they wanted. Uh, they had a, a, you know, a general listing of things they needed to cover, but they had a lot of uh, ability to cover topics that interested them. And I don't feel like that's true anymore. When I talk to my teacher friends, all they ever talk about is how micro-controlled every aspect of their lives is. Uh, and they barely have enough time to cover the topics that they're instructed to. Um, so teaching definitely used to be a very dynamic field. And now it's very, very controlled. And I feel like we're all sort of suffering under that kind of regime where we're definitely not given the ability to pursue our own interest. Uh, it's definitely increased, I would say, in the last, noticeably in the last 10 years for, as regards to teaching, and that's a result of very obvious and very public legislation uh, relating to No Child Left Behind and Common Core and people just feeling like they don't have a say. I'm speaking with Sean Kerrigan. He's the author of Bureaucratic Insanity, the American Bureaucrat's Descent into Madness. And in, and in that first chapter uh, titled uh, Zero Tolerance Society, uh, you write that the criminalization of what is normally considered juvenile but largely harmless behavior is changing the public perception of what it means to be a criminal. And this has happened of bringing uh, even the police into minor uh, infractions of uh, of childhood uh, pranks almost. Talk a little, give some amazing examples throughout there, but talk a little bit in general terms and specific about uh, this zero-tolerance society. Well, as a result of the bureaucratization of society, I think that the pressure is really starting to get to these mid-level mid and low-level bureaucrats. And the result is that they're taking out their aggression more and more on other people. So particularly, you can see this in schools where, again, teachers, they have no autonomy anymore and they're frustrated. So when a student uh, acts out in an inappropriate way, they, they act more aggressively than they probably should. So one example I saw in the news this year was a student who was pretending to burp in class. He was making burping noises, you know, stuff that teenagers or, or preteens do. And so they called the cops on him. And they charged Jeez. him with, uh, yeah, I know. They charged him with, uh, you know, I think it was like interrupting the educational system or something like that. Now, that'll probably uh, end up being thrown out or plead out. But he'll have an arrest record for the rest of his life for the result of that. And it's like you couldn't find a different way to deal with this. And there are other examples. One is a kid brought a leaf into school. Now, the Washington Post reported on this and they said – Almost certainly this leaf was a maple leaf. You know, the kid thought it was interesting looking. And 
someone at the school said that it was marijuana. Now, it obviously wasn't marijuana, but the school decided to send it away for testing. And they sent it away for testing numerous times, and it bo- every time it came back negative. But the school decided that merely the suggestion that it might have been marijuana was justification for sending this kid to, to drug uh, rehabilitation. And so he ended up going to an alternative school. He had to be subjected to uh, searches periodically for drugs. And the result is that he's, his life has been turned upside down just because he had a leaf on him and somebody else said, hey, that looks like marijuana, even though it wasn't. So merely the suggestion that it might have been an illegal substance is enough to have your whole life turned upside down. Now, that's bad enough, but what what happened in the, the administrator's mind that he thought that that was justified? Any any rational, caring person would never have made the decision to bring in the cops in these situations. They just would have looked at it and said, you know, this is something that kids do, and we're going to look at this in a caring sort of a way. But they don't do that anymore. For some reason, they seem to they seem to get a, a certain amount of joy out of punishing children these days. And I can, if, for a long time, this didn't make any sense to me. That's what motivated me to write the book, is trying to figure out why are people acting so aggressively in this society? You know, we call it zero tolerance, but it's really zero intellect, zero personal responsibility. People feel like they're justified in using these excessive methods to punish children. Another one was where... Uh, Kids were playing with food on the bus. They were throwing peanuts at each other. And this is reported by the ACLU. And I think it was in the South, either Alabama or Mississippi. So these kids are on the bus. They're throwing peanuts at each other. And one of the peanuts hits the bus driver. So the bus driver pulls the bus over. They call the cops. And these kids are charged with misdemeanor battery. Misdemeanor battery for food fight. Now, eventually... The parents, they went to court and they said, hey, we don't want any charges here. And the charges were dropped. But, you know, they couldn't have figured out a different way to deal with that than involving the police. And, you know, this extends beyond just the schools. But the schools, I think, are where kids are least, you know, the most powerless to sort of uh, resist it. And that's where we see it happening uh, the most. But you can see it at other, other areas of society. I'm sure that at jobs that you've worked or at jobs I've worked, I know, I've seen mid-level managers just be cruel for really no reason. And they just, they live within the rules. The rules are kind of like a defense mechanism that they can use to uh, justify their aggressive behavior. So where, where does this come from? How do people um, get caught in this? I think that when your, your autonomy is taken away, you're looking for anything that you can do to sort of reestablish that sense of meaning and purpose in your life. I think it was uh, Marshall McLuhan, or maybe not, maybe it was Lewis Mumford, yes, it was Lewis Mumford who said that uh, all violence is a result of identity. And uh, whenever you're acting violently, it's a result of trying to establish an identity or you're trying to defend the identity that you have. So a lot of these people, these bureaucrats, they don't have an identity. It's been taken away from them as a result of the bureaucratization of their jobs. And so the violent acts that they're, you know, not physical violence, but spiritual violence that they're taking out against other people is the result of their lack of identity. They're trying to establish a sense of purpose, a reason for being there, for being alive. So they end up acting more aggressively than is justified in any situation. Um, so they live within the rules because they can't they can't fight the rules because that's not allowed. They'll lose their jobs. It's they're heavily incentivized against fighting against the rules. So instead of resisting the rules and finding identity that way, they choose to live within them. The rules become more important than the people they're meant to serve. And you can see that happen with cops sometimes. They seem to revel in uh, living within the rules, you say, well, can't you just overlook this just this once? And like, oh no, this, this is the rules. You know, of course they could overlook it, 
but they like to live within the rules. The rules give them a sense of purpose. So the rules almost become a kind of substitute for community or, or personal meaning in the way that we typically think of it. So who is this serving in the end? You talk about the uh, military bureaucratic uh, edifice. Uh, Is there a sense, make that connection uh, between the bureaucratic behavior at the low level and the the American empire, if you will? Well, I think that they feel that uh, ultimately it's worth it because it does increase efficiency to have everything be predictable, to have the decisions be made in fewer and fewer hands. Now, that does increase uh, instability because you have a lot of psychological problems at the low end. But ultimately, the various forces that control society, that direct society, that push our civilization forward are benefiting enormously from the the scientific predictability of our behavior. So if they can micromanage everything with a kind of military efficiency, they can more accurately predict project uh, economic growth and things of this nature. So it's kind of like an expansion of the logic that military operates under. Military is as old as civilization, and it's basically about moving power into fewer and fewer hands to increase efficiency. So we're just trying to, our society is just trying to expand that to other areas, Um, using science and scientific certainty to try and create a society where everything is predictable and therefore efficient so that we can utilize resources more effectively. Um, So it it has its uses. It's not like this is just some kind of huge oversight. Uh, Some people at the top are definitely benefiting, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. I I would say that they're not consciously aware of the kind of things that they're doing This is just becoming part of the culture. It's because it's so dominant. It's everywhere. People don't think how absurd it is to 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 act so hostily and not to, you know, look at your own humanity and say, you know, am I really enforcing these rules for my own ego's sake or am I doing it because the rules have a purpose? People are so blinded they can't see it, see it for what it is. But uh, I definitely say that our controlling forces of the society whether they be people or machines at the top are definitely benefiting from the system that we've created. I'm speaking with Sean Kerrigan. He's the author of uh, Bureaucratic Insanity, The American Bureaucrats' Descent into Madness. His website is seankerrigan.com. Now, one of the things you wrote in that same chapter, A World Without Meaning, in regards to the military, is that this military bureaucratic edifice is temporarily possible because of cheap and abundant energy from fossil fuels. And now we are finding that ending. So what is the future here as... uh, as, as we move into the limits of fossil fuels, is this bureaucratic uh, going to get even worse? Uh, do you see that happening? Well, I do see that uh, there's a couple of things happening simultaneously. So when you had uh, the centralization of power, the centralization of power over the course of civilization's history has been made po- more and more possible through cheap energy. So you started with uh, things like wood, and that would allow you to, you know, create some very rudimentary sorts of fuel. Uh, And then, you know, you moved up to coal and that allowed the centralization of more and more power into fewer hands. You had the nation state basically be created on the back of coal. And then you had oil, which is even cheaper and can, you can do even more with it. And that allowed you to create the modern superpower. Now we don't really have a replacement for coal, but we're still trying to centralize more and more power into fewer hands. And the result is that we're, we're getting some instability, and that's very apparent everywhere you look. Everybody's in debt. We've got all sorts of uh, frequent wars, lots of jockeying for resources, and you know it's becoming harder and harder to move more and more power into fewer hands. People are resisting. It's very easy to centralize power when everybody's doing better off as a result because you can just say, hey – we're all going to benefit if you just surrender a little bit more of your autonomy. But when resources aren't as freely available, it becomes harder and harder to justify that. And people want to, they want to scale back. 
They want to reestablish their own sense of purpose. And the benefits of not doing so are just not worth it anymore. So the lack of cheap resources, really is, it's really an economic issue as well as a psychological one. So I feel like the direction that we're headed generally is one of more instability. Until we can find a solution, uh, the result is going to be that civilization is going to find a slowly start to work backwards. You're going to have more instability, and that's going to result in more psychological backlash. Um, if you're not able to justify going to work every day and, and you know, suppressing your own emotions, sooner or later you're going to find, well, you know, maybe I can find more meaning and get along just as well without going to this relatively high-paying job. You know, maybe I can go for a, a little bit less money and have more autonomy. And more and more people will make those decisions if the money isn't there to justify those uh, inhumane professions. Well, that's a good thing then, right? I mean, isn't I that a possibility? Thing, that but we can... it also comes with uh, the, the negative aspect of more and more instability. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this stuff doesn't come without a cost. You can't, you can't kind of pull away all that economic infrastructure that we've built up, all this centralization of power. You can't pull away the centralization of power without there being a huge disruption in society's underpinnings because we've sort of grown reliant on that. Um, if you pull away the global monetary system, for example, uh, you're not going to have a simple return to the way things were right. back in you know, the 15th century, say. It's going to be very disruptive, and it's going to take a long time to, to sort of reestablish something that works. So you know, the idea of collapse is not that, well, we just take a step back. It's also that things don't really go as, as well as you planned. So it's very disruptive. It's, um, and, you know, disruption can have a huge impact on your sense of self-worth. In some ways, it might be good for you to lose your job psychologically, but it's also going to have an enormously negative impact that you can't just dismiss. So you might feel better about yourself if you quit your job and tell your boss to stick it, but you're going to, you're going to pay for that. So there's, it's, you know, there are two sides of the coin. Yeah, well, and as as uh, we uh, head for industrial collapse or within it right now, uh, we can find that all of these bureaucratic structures, um, these kind of self prison making structures, uh, will increase, won't they? I mean, won't uh, I mean the powers that be aren't going to let us get away with uh, riots and revolts? Right. What happens whenever a society collapses is that it tends to double down on the things that caused it to collapse in the first place. So it never looks at itself and says, how did we get here? Where did we go wrong? Instead, it simply doubles down on the things that have worked for it in the past. And that in, in our case, that's going to be the centralization of even more power in fewer hands, which is going to increase the instability, which is ultimately going to cause more problems in the long run. Uh, it's hard to say how this will come to a head, but I guarantee it will be the result of instability, more problems as a result of uh, more decisions being made in fewer people's hands and those people just not having a grip on the complexity of the situation. And you don't see uh, really a possibility of reforming this, uh, for example, through electoral politics, for example, or or anything like that. That uh, what, what I get from reading your book, and we'll see if you're still here, are, is it really it's a matter now of kind of uh, creating lifeboats? Hmm. Well, I do think that it's a matter of personal perseverance. You've got to find your okay. own meaning in life. Um, trying to create, to uh, change the system from within, it's almost too big of a problem because we're talking about a, a problem that's cultural, it's civilizational. It's really about what civilization is all about. Civilization is all about moving uh, authority into fewer hands. You can't just go against that. That's kind of like what it, what it exists to do. So unless you're like a primitivist who's willing to uh, kind of go back to the caves or something like that, it's hard, to, it's hard to fight against civilization. But the best thing that we can do as individuals is try to find some kind of personal meaning. You know, we may not have a choice. We might have to listen to our bureaucratic uh, superiors for a little while longer, at least until something starts to, to give way. 
But in the interim, uh, we can pro- probably improve our own lives and our own sense of meaning just by by finding alternatives, alternative ways of providing a sense of self-worth. Yeah, just kind of not giving ourselves over to this uh, mythology of bureaucracy, uh, so to speak. Uh, you mentioned uh, practices of uh, meditation or, or distancing oneself, finding a sense of personal values. Right. The first, the first part is to become aware of the problem and understand that, you know, you're, you, if you're unhappy at your job, it might be because you're not being given the, the kind of latitude that you'd like. You're just uh, sort of acting like a machine, uh, just, you know, pushing the right buttons at the right time or saying the right things. But you're not being given the autonomy to, to really feel alive. And if that's the case, then, you know, just being aware will put you in the right mindset that will allow you to make steps to move towards some kind of progress. Um, that's just step one. You know, after that, you've got to kind of start from scratch, maybe. Find something that interests you that will give you meaning and allow you to subsist in this kind of uh, capitalist economy that we've created. Sean Kerrigan has been my guest on Progressive Spirit, a very thoughtful book, uh, website as well, seankerrigan.com. His book is Bureaucratic Insanity, The American Bureaucrat's Descent into Madness. Sean, thanks for what you do, and thanks for being with me today. All right, John. Thank you for having me. Up next, University of Texas professor Dinah Ramey Berry discusses her book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved, From Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. This is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit, formerly Religion for Life, has been on the air and on podcast for over five years. Every week, you hear scholars, activists, authors, and interesting people who have a voice for spirituality and social justice. Reach customers by advertising on Progressive Spirit. Go to AdvertiseCast forward slash Progressive Spirit for details. That's AdvertiseCast forward slash Progressive Spirit. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. My next guest is Dinah Ramey Berry. She's an associate professor of history in African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She's the author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved, From Womb to Grave, in the Building of a Nation. Welcome, Professor Barry, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Tell me how this book uh, came to be and and all of the research that went into it. Oh, my gosh. That's kind of a loaded question. But um, this book actually was part of – it was actually a, a chapter in my first book. And I was just looking at how enslaved people were valued in one county in Georgia. Um, and the publishers felt that the work that I had done for that particular chapter really didn't fit with the rest of the book that I wrote. And that they said, you know, we really think you have something here and maybe you should explore it further in another project. And so this book was just a chapter of another book. And I, then I decided to go on and look at enslaved people's prices. And one of the things that I was after at that time, um, and this was you know, more than 10 years ago, but I was trying to figure out whether or not women's values, um, their monetary values were higher than enslaved males' values during their childbearing years, because I knew that um, the value of enslaved people and the system of slavery in the United States, particularly after the closing of the transatlantic slave trade in 1808, um, that particular um, time switch made it such that women became important because they gave birth to new laborers. And the status of enslaved people was defined by whether or not their mother was enslaved. And so I thought, let me see if this is a pattern that's a national pattern, because I did find that was the case for this one community in Georgia. And I started doing research in the archives and collecting data on enslaved people's prices. And what I discovered was that that was not the case and that women across the board were valued at lower monetary values than male enslaved people. And um, I wanted to know more about this process of selling, of trading, of valuing. And I also really wanted to know what enslaved people knew and thought about being treated as a commodity. 
So your book really shows the monetary values placed on the bodies of enslaved people from pre-birth to even post-death. Uh, how did you decide to put it together, and, and, how, um, and what did you discover and want to communicate in your book? Well, I, I wasn't planning on, on looking at their values of their bodies after they died. Um, that, something was some, that was something I stumbled on, and I first saw it in court records where I was looking at how enslaved people, um, after, when they were, I was looking at all the places where they were appraised, where they were given sort of a, a projection of their value. And when I saw these projections, I saw them in annual estate inventories. Um, I saw them in court records where somebody passed away or somebody was suing somebody whose enslaved person died in their possession. And I wanted to know, um, why were they valuing them at death? You know, why did it matter that they had a monetary value. And then I realized that people were being reimbursed. And sometimes these court cases took six or seven years post-mortem. And so not only were they getting the financial value of the body at the time of the appraisal that the court appraised it of the body, then they were getting the interest on that, that price. And I thought that means that their commodification extends beyond their natural lives. And I was like, I need to know more about this because I don't think I've ever thought about it this way. I've never read anything about this, and I want to know what this means and how do I make sense of it. And so I then uncovered this postmortem, I call it a, a trade and a cadaver trade, a domestic cadaver trade in um, the bodies of enslaved people, although enslaved people weren't the only ones that were being traded in that way. Um, this was just what I was focusing on because that was the subject of my book. You know, it was just really uh, horrifying in reading this that uh, the, these people were was treated like livestock really and 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 insurance companies and insurance and and complex uh systems that went all through the banking system and everything uh to put uh value on 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 people's lives as if, as if they really as if they were livestock in a sense mhm i you know i tell my students when i teach um both undergraduate and graduate students to, to think about um, the ways in which enslaved people were considered an object. They were not, yeah. you know, they were treated as objects. And when we think about that, then it, it doesn't necessarily make sense to us in the 21st century, but it allows us to, to find a way to sort of process this whole, to process the, the idea of that. Um, and so when you think about that, you think about a, a great, another great analogy I use is thinking about used cars um, or rental cars. When you go rent a car, you need to, um, to you know, you need to sign a contract, um, and you know you're liable for damages. Um, and so, enslaved people were treated the same way. They were treated like you treat a rental car. If somebody borrowed a slave or loaned their slave enslaved person out, and they came back and they were not in the same physical condition, they could sue. And so, the court records are a really, really rich source for understanding, you know, not only the postmortem value of enslaved bodies, but also even while they were living. Uh, you, you talked at one point that um, the way in which they would be marketed, uh, such as prime and choice, uh, were the same words that were used by uh, the agriculture department. Yes. And, you know, that I think I, I was telling uh, students this, that this is an area that I think we need to do a little more research on, um, because when I was looking at the descriptions, I was trying to understand when they, when enslaved people are on a, on a four point scale that they're rated, right. And, um, you know, a full hand or a one prime is someone that is at the peak of their physical condition. Um, typically between the ages of 18 and 30 years old, both male and female, um, and that they could do the, the most amount of work at a, during the given day. Um, that's someone that was prime. And then all other enslaved people were rated on a scale that went below that. So the, if you weren't a full hand, you'd be a three fourths hand, then a half hand, then a quarter hand, and then you would have no rating at all. And so those their values, their monetary values were directly linked to this rating scale. But not all enslavers um, had rates in their records. So, you know, we can't go to every plantation record and find out what an enslaved person's rate was. But those that have these records, I found a correlation that was directly related to their values. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dinah Ramey Berry. She's the author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. You mentioned the transatlantic tra slave trade ending in 1808. What were the changes that occurred because of this transatlantic slave trade ending? Well, first of all, um, 
the transatlantic slave trade was the supply source of slavery, right? That's where you that's right. where you can purchase additional laborers. Um, when the supply source is cut off, they have to find other ways. Now, two things. One, although it was officially outlawed in the United States in 1808, um, illegal ships came regularly through the eve of the Civil War, literally. I think the last ship that we have record of came in 1861. Um, so right, you know, right on the eve of the early part of the Civil War. Um, so we still are, there still are Africans being brought into the America, into the United States, even after 1808, illegally, all right? Now, so one of the changes that happens is that you need more laborers, and we know that women giving birth brings more laborers, and those laborers don't cost money if you own that enslaved female. So natural reproduction is a term that some historians use. Um, forced breeding is another term. Rape is another term. But the, the or encouraged reproduction, if you want to be a little more euphemistic about it, yeah. um, but women were key and essential to helping, quote unquote, grow the institution. I'm not saying that they did that willingly, um, but it's something that we find even in the literature in terms of um, literature between advice among masters. There's a book about that. Even in the um, newspapers, they'll have columns where they'll talk about how to grow a Negro. Literally, that's the term like, you know, how to, on raising Negroes and livestock. And they literally um, manage this system of reproduction very similar to animal husbandry. And they thought about how they could create certain cre certain comforts for the woman. The cabin needs to be a certain way, decrease her work life, um, you know, decrease her rating so that she doesn't have to do the same amount of output put, um, during, during a, a particular day or allow her to have some respite from labor a certain amount of weeks before birth. Now, that sounds great, right? Um, and it sounds, you know, it sounds um, reasonable. But when we look at the literature and we look at the enslaved people's voices and we look at their stories, a lot of them will say, a lot of the narratives that we have will say, I didn't get enough rest. I, I worked up until birth or I worked and only had a total of three or six weeks off, whether that was before or after birth. You know, um, some of them said three weeks is not enough time or you know, my, this is why we have like high infant mortality rates during slavery. The children didn't make it to age five um, because there was poor nutrition and they were being overworked. So although we find this advice in some of the literature, um, some of the lived experience differs from that advice that, we, that we're seeing in that literature. And I always tell people when I teach about his, the, the history of slavery, that it's a very diverse institution and there's a large spectrum of people's experiences. There's not one sort of monolithic story. So one woman might have had great comforts when she got pregnant, she might have been given six months off. Another woman might have literally delivered in the fields, handed the baby over and kept working. It just varied based on the attitude of the owner and the, the nature of their plantation system or farm that they lived on. And that would be different in terms of, of, of families of the enslaved, because at one part in your book you talk about the men kind of being sold or uh, rented out as breeders. I mean, so you had... Yes. Uh, and, and women, so there would be different fathers and mothers for, for the children. So there really wasn't a family in many cases, or it was obviously well, forced. Well, the, that's, a good, that's a good statement because um, we do know, and there's a lot of, there's a long literature on um, enslaved families. And scholars have been writing about enslaved people's families since the you know, 50s and 60s, 1950s and 1960s. Um, so you do have, and that's what's unique about American slavery, is that you do have the development of families. There's a, a quote that I always share um, from an enslaver who said, you know, any Negro with a well-stocked poultry house um, with a canoe, his own cabin, and a wife and a garden plot of his own will never run away. And so there's this thought of, like, well, if we give them certain things and allow them to have these relationships, then maybe that will encourage them to have families. Then there's also those other individuals, like you just mentioned, who were just used as breeders, where they were literally taken around. Some of the men were taken to other plantations. If they were, and women that were fertile, they would they would say that they're using them as breeding women. Um, and the term breeding changes depending on what time period you're looking at, because in the colonial, the late colonial era, you know, after around the American Revolutionary generation, you know, breeding meant raising children. It didn't mean breeding like we think about it today in terms of animal breeding. Um, but when we got into the 19th century, I saw a shift in the literature and the way um, newspapers and other sources were talking about how 
how to how to have how to increase your enslaved population. So some women um, were giving having birth multiple times, 13, 14 pregnancies. Some of the children would survive and some of them didn't. And when you we, we have testimony of women that were being interviewed in the auction block and they'd say, well, you know, how many babies can you have or how many children can you give birth to? And some of them would say, I don't I don't know how many I've had. I don't count them anymore. It doesn't matter. You know, I never get them, you know. So there's some that develop this emotional distance um, or detachment from the offspring that they bore because they, one, didn't want them to either experience slavery. Two, they knew they would be taken away. Three, some of them died because of the high rates of, of infant mortality. Well, let's, you mentioned the auction block. Um, describe that a little bit. Children would be sold, uh, ripped away from their mothers, even as, as babies, as soon as they were weaned. Uh, what did children and parents experience uh, through this as you researched it? I would, I mean, I'm not a psychologist or anything, but I would say extreme trauma was what they experienced. Um, and trauma that probably lasted for the rest of their lives because we see um, testimony and narratives and stories after stories where they talk about how they remember that moment when they were first separated from their biological parents um, because they all had multiple parents that served as in parental roles after they were separated. Um, and women were, and women and children were separated, not necessarily after they were weaned. Um, we have evidence of, of babies being taken from the breast literally mm. at the auction. And I, and to be honest, I, I have to confess, um, I couldn't talk about that part of this history for about six years because I had a little, I had a young child and I nursed that child and I could not publicly speak about it. I could not write the first um, three chapters of this book until I was further, until my child was older. Um, I, I started this book when my son was born and he's now uh, 11 years old, but I, I had a difficult time writing about the, the separation of very young children from their mothers. Um, so the auction was a traumatic space, and, and it's also a varied space. There's the public auctions where they're sold on courthouse steps or on a wooden stump um, that's, you know, from a tree stump. Um, there are very, very public auctions. There's sheriff sales. There were private auctions or private transactions or private sales. So there's a number of different ways. Um, most of the auctions that I write about in this, in this book are the more public auctions um, because those are the testimonies that I that the evidence is still extant where people had witnessed them and they wrote about it and those that's just you know part of the historian's craft we we work with what documents are still there and so a lot of that um, a lot of the records that I used were from these types of auction experiences but I also found newspaper accounts where someone was describing an auction they witnessed um, and sometimes in those accounts there were quotes from enslaved people. And that's where I got the, day, the, the information of the enslaved person's voice. But they were inspected. Um, sometimes they were kept in a holding pen a facility that looked just like a contemporary jail today um, or a small county jail. Um, sometimes they would allow people to come and inspect the quote-unquote merchandise for sale a few days in advance of the, of the auction. Um, as they were being prepared for the auction, they were fed well. Um, they were, they would often grease their skin to make them look shiny and try to hide scars and the skin looking shiny would make them look younger or healthier than they may have actually been. Um, their body cavities were searched, um, men and women, you know, they sometimes, as I said before, were put, women were allowed to go behind a curtain so they could do a gynecological exam on them. Um, and sometimes they didn't have curtains and sometimes they just were sort of patting people down. They'd have them run in place, run up and down, jump up and down, make sure their limbs were working. Um, and sometimes they had warranties to guarantee that this person that they're purchasing is healthy. And that's, that's another record that we find evidence of enslaved people's sales. I'm speaking with Dinah Ramey Berry. She's the author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. She's a professor of history at uh, the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and it, throughout your book, you, you trace it from uh, infants then to uh, adolescence to middle age and to older age and, and finally post-mortem. Um, and when you moved to the uh, adolescent part, there was also something else that developed, uh, and you call it a soul value. 
Um, while the enslaved had monetary values placed on their bodies by the enslavers, the enslaved themselves uh, developed this soul value. Let's spend some time with that. Uh, how did you come up with that term, and what does that mean? So I was thinking about um, how, by reading their words and spending time really looking for their testimonies, I was trying to understand and make sense of the will to survive, if there was one, um, and how they coped with being treated as a product, you know, and I wanted to know, what does it mean? We know, and there's been some really good um, work by sociologists and historians and psychologists that write, um, frankly, about how enslaved people really struggled, and they were sort of in a melancholy state and depressed and not necessarily present, like people talked about them as like the walking dead, um, they talked about them as being socially dead, um, as being, you know, just sort of gone. They were just, they were moving in, in body, but not there in spirit. And I kept thinking of, I was running into sto story after story or testimony after testimony of enslaved people saying, you know, it didn't matter what they did to my body. They could never take my soul. They could not touch my soul. They could not, they could not sell my soul. Um, they could not take my immortal part. So there was something there that I saw and kept coming across, and and it's it's in narratives, it's that sort of flickering spirit inside of them, whether they were religious or not, that they held on to to survive. And it's it's an internal space that I describe it. I said it's it's not something that's tangible. I can't show you what it looks like, but it's something that I felt was communicated very loudly to me through the sources that I read, and I call it their soul value. It's the mon it's the non monetary value of their immortal selves, of their souls. So that, you know, you have an enslaved man named Mingo who's ran away after his, he was separated from his wife and his kids. And he was also a poet and he would write poems. And um, he wrote a poem on the beam of a prison wall and to his wife. And it was the night before he passed away, before he was captured and, and killed. Um, and I, he didn't know when he was writing this poem that it was the night before he was gonna die. But he said, you know, all these beautiful things, a beautiful poem. And he says at the end, though, he says that, you know, no matter what happens, basically, they cannot sell that immortal part. And he talked about, you know, thinking about seeing her somewhere else. So they believed that there, some of them believed that there was a separation at death between the body and the soul. And that the soul would live on no matter what happens to the body. And they needed to live and believe and think that. Um, and I wonder to myself, like, you know, what happens if they knew about some of the things that happened to their physical body, you know, after they died, the commodification of their bodies afterwards. But I think for them, there's a release of the soul. And this soul value is, is something that I found kept people going. And I would argue allowed, you know, nearly 4 million people to, to walk away from slavery in 1865 when they were given their freedom with the 13th Amendment. That poem you included in your book, would, would you read that? I'd be happy to. Good God, and I must leave them now, my wife, my children, in their woe. Tis mockery to say I'm sold, but I forget these chains so cold. Dear wife, they cannot sell the rose of love that in my bosom glows. Remember, as your tears may start, they cannot sell thy immortal part. Thou son, which lighteth bond and free, tell me, I pray, is liberty. The lot of those who noblest feel, and oft to Jehovah's kneel. I feel high manhood on me now, a spirit glory on my brow. I feel a thrill of music roll, like angel harpings through my soul. Dinah Ramey Berry, reading from her book, uh, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation, a poem there uh, about uh, a man, Mingo, writing about his his soul value, as as you put it. Um, I, I wanted to go further. One of the questions that you ask throughout the book is uh, how, and, and I don't think you, you ever answer because you don't really know, you mm -hmm. can't get into it, but mm -hmm. how they felt about being valued. What did it mean to say for uh, a 19-year-old to be sold for $1,000? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I do. What, people ask me that all the time, and when the, the closest I can get to understanding that is that I don't think that they actually cared so much about the monetary value. Like they took pride in it. Like a lot of people ask me, did they have bragging rights? From what I can tell, and I mean, there may be other records that I haven't seen. Um, 
but from what I can tell, they didn't care about their, their value, their monetary value, their, their auction value, their appraised value. Only so much that it, it, it mattered in terms of who they were being sold to or who they did not want to be sold to. So sometimes on the auction, they would, they would interrupt the sale and say, well, I'm not that valuable or I am that valuable. I'm stronger than that. And they would try to up their price or lower their price because not because they wanted to feel a sense of pride in how much they were worth, but it was typically because their mother was sold or their sister or their aunt or their brother or their spouse, their partner um, had been sold to that particular person or they had been sold to another state and they knew that this person that was these people that were auctioning on them were from the deep south or what have you. And so sometimes you see that manipulation coming. But um, when I look at other testimonies about enslaved people and they talk about values, they say, you know, they talk about first rate enslaved people. There's a, there's a gentleman in the book I write about. And he says, I'll tell you what first rate is. They talk about first rate. What first rate is for me, and this is him writing after he's freed, after he freed himself, self-liberated and, and made it to Canada. He says, you know, first rate for me is being able to make it here, to have my own garden plot, to be able to, to, to have whatever I, whatever I plant is mine and to live here with my family in freedom. That's what I call first rate. Yeah, and that's and that's soul value right there, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. The subtitle of your book is uh, "Building uh, the Nation." C- can you talk about how America has been built on the price of human flesh? Yeah, um, literally and figuratively. I mean, I think that's would be my first response to that. One, um, enslaved people have worked through um, not only universities, which is a new area of scholarship, but they build. They built the canals. They helped build the railroads for this country. They helped build the cities when the when the American colonies were founded, uh, when enslaved people were brought here. Um, they helped the infrastructure of, of, you know, a vast area of this country, and that um, those contributions continued well into the 19th century. And I, one of the pieces that I'm arguing here is that the black bodies that were once enslaved and also free helped um, build our understanding of the human body and of American medicine. And that's the other piece that I, that I have here as well, besides the physical um, building of, of houses and infrastructures and, and towns and cities. My guest has been Dinah Ramey Berry. She's the author of The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, The Value of the Enslaved from Womb to Grave in the Building of a Nation. Diana Ramey Berry, professor at uh, the University of Texas in Austin. Thank you uh, so much for this book, this insight, and, uh, and for being with me today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is my website. Catch Progressive Spirit weekly on several radio stations and via podcast. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Schuck. Be welcome.